Welcome back to Financial Planning Explained. My name is Mike Menninger, and I am the host and certified financial planner, owner, and founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. I'm here again with uh, two of my colleagues, uh, two advisors within our firm. Uh, to my immediate right is Kyle Ryan, also a certified financial planner. And then all the way to the right is Ryan Keefe, uh, again, two of my advisors within my firm. Uh, where we left off on the last episode is we were talking about uh, determining the cost of living, okay, the cost of living for retirement. First of all, you, you cannot underemphasize or underestimate, or whatever the term may be, the importance of knowing your cost of living. Hmm. Studies have shown that, I don't know how you measure this, but retirees are more afraid of running out of money than they are of dying. Again, I don't know how they measure that. <laughs> but they did. Harvard measures all kinds of stuff. <laughs> anyway, or the University of Michigan, whatever. Yeah. But uh, long and short of it is, you know, you want a successful retirement, you don't want to run out of money. And, and that is a fear. And that is the piece that people always come to us and ask, do I have enough? And the answer is always, it depends. But where we left off the last episode that we felt as though it's probably worth spending a little more time on is estimating the cost of living. As we indicated, we talked about First of all, taking a look at a way of doing it is taking a look at two defined points of time. Did they increase or decrease their savings during that period? And what was their income and from there that basically says this is how much you spent in the last year. But then subsequently, how do you look under the hood? What you're talking about doing, what you had said in the last episode, is taking a look at your credit cards. And I'll tell you what, that is a great idea because we have a handful of clients who spend literally all their money on their credit card, which, by the way, is a great idea if at the end of every month you're paying it off, okay? But the reason is, heck, they get points, you know, whether it's airline miles or whatever the case may be. I'm a personal fan. My points, I like cash points, but my fan. So the, the great thing about putting it on a credit card is they're doing the tracking for you. A lot of credit cards have the ability to download statements at the end of the year and to be able to categorize all of your expenses, mm -hmm. okay? And... I was like, I'm spending how much at Chick-fil-A? That's correct, <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know? And so the other thing is, that's, that's a good point that you just brought up, Kyle, because we come across this a lot. There are apps out there. Now, we have an app that enables people to be able to connect to their checking account, their savings account, and their credit cards, which allows them to categorize their spending, mm -hmm. okay? And some of these programs are actually kind of smart programs where I'll use Wawa, for example. I could be going into Wawa and getting a $7 sandwich, but Wawa is also where I normally go because it's convenient for me to get gas. Mm -hmm. And I go there for 50 bucks for gas, roughly, and so you can train it to know that if I'm going there and it's seven to 10 bucks, I'm buying a sandwich, but if it's there for 50 bucks, I'm buying gas. Yeah. But you can teach these programs to categorize it. Yeah. The program that we have is proprietary, but we allow our clients to use it. But there are other programs out there. Mm -hmm. Call us, let us know, we're not supposed to be advertising stuff, but there are programs out there that enable you to connect. And from there, 
Let me tell you the wake-up call that people get. They're like, holy smokes, I'm spending $250 a month going to Starbucks. Okay, I'm spending $800 a month going to restaurants. And I'm spending $300 a month going to Chick-fil-A, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not here to tell you not to spend money at going to get coffee every morning, not to spend money on sandwiches out, not to spend money on restaurants. We're here to say, look, it's good to know where you're spending it. Because if we ascertain or you ascertain that your spending is $10,000 a month pre-retirement and you say, well, we can afford to live on or you can afford to live on $8,000 a month, you have two choices, actually multiple choices, but the two main choices are if you want to live on $8,000 a month, then gosh darn it, you need to reduce your cost of living. This gives you the ability to see where you're spending it so that you can say, look, you know what? Maybe I won't get coffee in the morning. Maybe I'll make coffee in the morning every day. Maybe instead of going out for lunch every day, maybe I'm going to pack a lunch every day. Uh, you know, take a look at the things that you, once you do have the awareness of where you're spending, you know, like you're saying, you know, you don't want to, don't cut on places where you enjoy spending money on. Spend mercilessly there. Cut elsewhere. Right? If you don't enjoy something, that's where you can cut from because it's, you know, it's real easy to increase expenses. It's a lot harder to decrease them. Right. Right. And I want to separate one thing uh, to kind of moving us from that is there's one thing of understanding today's cost of living. It is very important to try as hard as you can to accurately forecast your cost of living in retirement. And that's not just taking what it is today. We kind of went into that in the last episode toward the end was, you know, if you have grandkids, do you have gifting goals? Do you have legacy goals? Do you want to leave something behind? How do you plan for that? One thing I, that I've personally, that we, I'm sure we've all noticed, is that when we are planning for retirement expenses 10, 15 years down the line, you have to account for inflation. That is a huge thing because you can't use today's dollars for 15 years down the line. We just saw inflation all over the headlines in the last two years. It needs to be accounted for. Right. And so going back to the mortgage, because we, we talked about is, you know, if you have a $1,300 mortgage or $2,000 mortgage, I'm sorry, but 700 of it is considered to be taxes and insurance, then what we do when we're doing planning is we look, first of all, you can't assume that once your mortgage is paid off, you're $2,000 free and clear. That is not true because what happens is that $700 of taxes insurance are going to remain. But when we do long-term planning, what we do is we carve out the principal and interest of the mortgage because the principal and interest is one thing that will not inflate because what is it? It's a fixed loan, okay? But the $700 will. So we factor that in. Now, we also factor in medical costs. And what we'll do with some people is we'll actually carve out their medical costs and ramp that up at a different rate of inflation because it is demonstrated that if inflation is average 3% over time, which in the last few years we've demonstrated that inflation was substantially higher than 3%, but then we also went through about 15 years before that where it was closer to 2 or even sub 2. But do not underestimate the impact of uh, those types of expenses. Furthermore, for people retiring prior to age 65, you also have to factor in medical expenses. So if somebody's going to, let's say, retire at age 60 or 62, that's fine. We have that plenty of times. But you know that Medicare is going to kick in at age 65, but if they're not covered by a 
type of company retirement uh, medical plan or they don't have a spouse who's going to have a medical plan, then you need to factor in those medical costs. Call it $1,000 a month per person till age 65. And also people say, oh, well, they look at their social security statement. I'm gonna get $3,000 a month as social security at let's say age 67. Mm -hmm. Oh, do not forget to reduce that by Medicare. And oh, let's not forget Irma. And taxes as a whole. <laughs> taxes as a whole. Taxes actually. as a whole. You know, federal taxes change. The state you live in will have a, can have an enormous impact on your income each year. So that's another thing that you have to factor is if PA, you know, I take a, it, Social Security is not taxable in PA. Retirement distributions aren't taxable in PA. I move to New York, California, certain states that do tax it. Way different story. Way less income. Right. right. That's and, correct. And some states have, you know, cliffs where if you you know so you spend under a hundred thousand this is your tax rate you spend a hundred thousand and one boom you're jumping into that bracket. that's correct that's correct so so do not underestimate the impact what you're saying is of state income tax in fact you know that goes into retirement planning on the accumulation phase because what you really want to understand is where you're going to be in retirement and we had a particular client who was on the fence benefiting whether or not they would be uh, better served contributing to pre-tax or Roth to their 401k. But what we knew is that they lived in New York. They were in a 6.5% New York state tax bracket. And the moment they retired, they were out of New York and moving to Pennsylvania or Florida, which in this case was Pennsylvania, then Florida. And because there are no state taxes on retirement plan income, such as 401k, I'm sorry, IRAs, 401ks. What we did is we adjusted for that because effectively he was in a 24% tax bracket in New York. He's getting an extra six and a half percent. He's really in a 30 and a half percent tax bracket. The moment he loses to one of these other states, boom, he's done with that. But then the same goes is if you're living in Pennsylvania, which doesn't tax doesn't give you a deduction and doesn't tax you on the back end, and you're going to move to a taxable state, then you need to do things during the, the and again, this becomes pre-retirement and post-retirement tax planning that you want to do, because do not underestimate the impact of taxes on a successful retirement, because that can make a big, big difference. And, and, you, and you said IRMA earlier, and I just, for our viewer, wanted to clarify, IRMA's income-related uh, monthly adjustment amount. Um, and that's basically Medicare saying, if you have a modified just, adjusted gross income over a certain threshold, you're gonna be, not penalized, but you're gonna be charged more for your Medicare. You're gonna pay more for your Medicare. That's correct. Um, and there are certain things that impact that and certain brackets that you need to be aware of, because like the cliff I mentioned earlier, you spend one extra dollar into the next bracket, boom, your premiums are going up for the next couple of years. That's correct. And today, I'm going to use round numbers. In today, the modified adjusted gross of income is basically what's your income. But what they do is they add back the, the amount of Social Security that's not taxable, and then they add back any muni, tax-free muni bonds. Yeah. But round numbers is a little bit higher than this, and I know it's, it's just round numbers. It's about $200,000 for a married couple. $100,000 for single. So if your income exceeds $200,000, what's going to happen is two years from now when you're applying for Medicare, your Medicare premiums are going up. 
And what happens is that there are thresholds. And the next threshold might be 250,000, the next one's 300. Basically, what's happening is your income today is causing your Medicare premiums to go up in two years. Okay, do not underestimate the impact of that because as I've always said, anytime there's an exchange of money between you and the government and it's associated with your income, gosh darn it, I don't care, Irma or what, it's a tax, okay? And so you always need to take and consider that for pre-retirement planning as far as making contributions to retirement plans, do not underestimate the other components, the Medicare costs, the medical costs, the potential for increased Medicare costs in the form of IRMA, the increased state tax costs, the inflation. As you can see, there are a whole lot of factors that must be considered when you're taking a look at post-retirement expenses, which once again, it goes back to the beginning. How much do I need? Will I run out of money and I don't want to run out of money? And do not underestimate all these other impacts in order to really understand the impact. And I know we're up against break, but just one little thing I'll add here at the end. Be aware of your insurances in retirement. Um, That's correct. There could be life insurance that you could be sort of planning on, uh, long-term care insurance that you could be planning on, stuff that could really have an impact on your cost of living that That you you need to be aware of and make sure you make your premium payments if you have those in place. Yeah, right, no kidding. And in fact, you may actually find that the life insurance may no longer be necessary or as necessary once you're in retirement because if you had a term insurance policy designed to protect your family if you lost your income, fact of the matter is, is that you no longer have income other than Social Security. So then again, becomes another retirement income planning thing is do you need the life insurance and if so how much do you need so that's it for now we will be coming back after break uh, so stay tuned we'll be back in just a few moments do you keep up regularly with your investments where exactly are your hard-earned dollars going are you financially prepared for an emergency i'm mike manager founder of manager and associates financial planning We believe that education and knowledge are powerful, and we want our clients to understand why we are making the recommendations that we make. It's your money, and you deserve to know where it's going, because it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. So call us today to discuss. Welcome back to Financial Planning Explained. We spent a lot of time uh, in the first segment talking about forecasting, basically cost of living and forecasting cost of living. And you know we cannot under, underestimate, underemphasize whatever, we can't emphasize enough the understanding of it because you know too many times I've seen clients retire with a sizable nest egg and burn through it really quickly and all of a sudden find themselves 80 years old with hardly any money left. And that is a rude awakening. And, you know, sadly, one of our jobs is to be the bad guy. And the bad guy is telling someone, you know, years in advance, hey, you need to slow down here. You know, you cannot sustain this pace because the inevitable is not an enjoyable experience. You know, all of a sudden, if you get used to living on $10,000 a month because your income is 3000 but you're drawing seven, and all of a sudden that seven goes away, 
That is one, one real rude awakening. I'd rather be the bad guy today than the sympathetic shoulder later. Right. When that happens. And, and, and we've seen it before. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we've seen it before. It's sad. Um, but, you know, it happens. So I think one of you guys pointed out when we've done the retirement income plans, we run models. I think it was you, Kyle, the difference of $1,000. And, you know, so I run these plans and run enough models and, you know, not enough experience that it is remarkable what $1,000 can do. And, you know, it basically is an extra $1,000 that's being drawn off of your retirement accounts, magnified with inflation, and the inflation bug really catches up. Because as you're drawing down your assets, then your assets are producing less, and it ends up being a snowball effect because your income needs are rising, the asset is decreasing, they're both snowballing really quickly. Right. So go back to understand your cost of living. Now, we then talked about do not underestimate state taxes in retirement, your medical expenses, your Medicare, your IRMA, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in the next episode, we're gonna talk about withdrawal strategies, but one of the things that we want to talk about also is uh, going back to the investment planning and retirement planning is the sequence of returns and the risk of sequence of returns. I never realized it until somebody showed us once. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, they were trying to sell us the reason why we should sell annuities to our clients because it you know, removes the sequence of yeah. returns, I don't buy it, but be that as it may. Uh, when they showed us the statistics, it was rather, it's just simple math, and they're playing with math, and I know they're playing with math to illustrate a point, and that's what's good, good thing about math. You know, you can take anything with math to illustrate your point. Yep. Right. Um, but do you want to talk about the sequence of returns? Yeah, sure. So, you know, basically the sequence of return risk is when you, let's say you retire and you have this pot of money, if that pot of money, you're withdrawing a, a certain percentage off it monthly, the investment returns on that money. If you start off those years with negative returns, it's incredible how low that balance gets compared to if you start off that sequence with positive returns and then have negative returns later, even right. though you're withdrawing the same amount. Well, and so, to clarify, it's not withdrawing a certain percentage of your money, it's withdrawing a certain dollar amount. For instance, let's say for instance, I need $20,000 a year and I have a $400,000 retirement account. Well, $20,000 is 5% of the account. We've always said the last thing you ever wanna do is withdraw from an asset that's down. So pick a particular stock that might be worth $100 a share. If I needed $20,000, I need to sell 200 shares. What happens if that stock drops from 100 to 50? I now need to draw 400 shares. Mm -hmm. right, that's a big problem. But if the stock went from 100 to 200, I only need to draw 100 shares. Yep. Okay, so this goes back to the whole idea of time horizon. Okay, so to your point, if the value of the account dropped 20% in the first year, 
went from 200,000 to 100, I'm sorry, 400,000 to 320,000. Now I need 20,000? That 20,000 on 320 mm -hmm. is like almost 7%, 6%. And if I have another drop the following year, it drops from 320 to 250, my 20,000 I need out of that, which is 250,000, ends up being 8% of the account, which means that as long as that account does not produce 8%, what's going to happen is it's going to unravel. Yeah, and the, that's right, it's a slippery slope. It's a sequence of returns. But if the account went up 20% in the first year, I'm still withdrawing 20 grand, but I'm withdrawing 20 grand off of 480. Right. That's a much smaller percentage, and that runaway train is a runaway train to your favor. Mm -hmm. Okay? So. And, and one quick thing to help, one thing I think is really important to understand is, you know, how much more you need to gain after a loss in order to get whole, right? So if you lose 50% of the value of your account, it doesn't take 50% to get back. You need 100%, right? You have $100,000, you lose 50%, you go to 50,000. To get back to 100, you need 100% growth. So mitigating losses and understanding this, this sequence of return risk here is crucial in retirement because you just... It's luck, right? You get, if you just get unlucky and you retire in two bad years of a market and you weren't properly prepared and you know, allocated your investments accordingly and you were withdrawing from funds that were down, it could have a huge, huge adverse impact long term. Right. And that's, and that's why we as a firm implement strategies to mitigate a sequence of return risk. Right. And one of those being, you know, we have clients that are taking monthly distributions from their assets and we'll carve out say two-ish years, two and a half years of distributions and put it into a ultra-conservative investment that has very little volatility to it. Yeah. Um, that way, every month they need their money, they're getting their money, and we're not withdrawing when the markets are down. Yeah. And then when the markets, you know, does the stock market always comes back. When the markets eventually have gains, what we do is we just rebalance those gains and replenish that conservative investment. So they're never really drawing when the markets are down. That's correct. Yeah. By the way, you got to be careful. Stock markets always come back. The stock yeah. markets have, have always, always come, come back. back. Yeah, so. But um, to your point, you know, uh, what you don't want to be doing is drawing, as we uh, illustrated earlier, you don't want to be drawing off investments that are down. And once again, that goes back to the concept of diversifying. Okay. You diversify, usually stocks and bonds react the opposite of each other. Stocks are riskier than bonds, and when stocks are doing well, historically, bonds are not doing as well to their history. Meanwhile, because why? People are selling bonds to buy stocks. Hmm. But when stocks are doing poorly, people are selling their stocks and say, I want to go to safe bonds. Bonds are going to do well. But sometimes there are economic environments that cause both of them to come down at the same time, hmm. of which two of them, three of them, have occurred in the last, what? Five years. Four of them in the last 15. We actually end of 2018. 2018. Oh, yeah. so, so we take a look at it. So I don't know if anybody ever remembers the pandemic. It seems to be years and years ago. It was 2020. Okay. Yeah. So stocks went down 35% in a five-week period. Okay. And it took in that particular instance, not that long for them to come back. But you say, all right, well, cool, at least we got bonds. 
Two weeks after stocks started to plummet, bonds plummeted too. So if you're in a position of having to withdraw from your portfolio and you didn't have a section of your portfolio carved out that was independent of how stocks and bonds worked, guess what? You got smoked. You got smoked. The other time, as you pointed out, was 2008. We had a brief period in Q4 of 2018, they were both down. But 2008 was another example, okay, where stocks got spanked 55% in a span of only 15 months or 17 months. But bonds also during the latter part of that period also lost like 30%. So if all of your money is in stocks and bonds, which on the surface is a diversified portfolio, but if 100% of your money is tied up in those two asset classes and you need money, guess what? You're selling something that is down. But if you carved out, to Ryan's point, a portion of your portfolio, let's say two years of what your income needs are. So in the case of the 40,000, if I needed $20,000 a year, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna carve out $40,000 in this portfolio and put it in ultra-safe investments, ones that are not indicative of how the stocks or bonds are going to do, ones that are not subject to volatility, so that if stocks and bonds are both down at the same time, whew, thank goodness we've got that particular asset class to help us. But if stocks and bonds are doing well, we're continuing to pull from it. But what we're doing is we're using those other asset classes of stocks or bonds while they're up and backfilling, backfilling what we've been taking. What, isn't that serve, uh, buy low, sell high, right? Okay, so that's the sequence of returns, which basically goes into investment planning in retirement, which again, when we talked about retirement planning, it, it covers so many different, it's all integrated. Understanding the tax components of it, uh, understanding the need for money over time, understanding the investments, and also estate planning, and, and we touched upon a bunch of the different components. What we're gonna do in the next episode is we're gonna talk more about withdrawal strategies. This kind of teed it up for how do you invest it, okay? But on the next episode, we're gonna talk more about how do you go about withdrawal strategies. So we talked about, okay, carve out a certain amount for the withdrawal, but now we gotta be thinking about so many other things. So. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Uh, next episode, we're going to be talking more again, like I said, on the withdrawal strategies in retirement. But uh, thank you for uh, taking the time out of your day to join us. I hope you all learned something because uh, that is our, our focus. So thank you again. I'm Mike Manager, host of Financial Planning Explained and with Kyle and Ryan uh, being with, here, with me today. Uh, thank you again. You have a wonderful rest of your day and week.